big and glorious name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. And thank you, team, for leading us this morning musically. Appreciate you guys so much. Uh, they'll be back to do that to close out our service. And as we come to the communion table this morning, um, again, more acts of worship. Um, I know I mentioned it in my prayer, but I just have to say personally what a joy it is for me to hear so many voices mixed together singing the great truths of Scripture. And I know for some of us, or so many of us, in fact, uh, those aren't just rote words that we sing. We have experienced and are experiencing the great truths that we just sang this morning. And so that is to God's glory. And uh, I just want to encourage us to continue to sing well, to worship through song, to worship in prayer, uh, to worship in a little while as we come to the communion table in response to what Christ did. And even now to worship God as we turn our attention to the Bible and um, seek to hear from God in his word and uh, see what he would have for us and what he would have for us to learn. We are resuming this morning a series through the Old Testament book of Exodus that we started last fall. We got halfway through and then we stopped right before Christmas and we enjoyed our Christmas season together. And then we talked a lot about through January and early February the reality of sharing the gospel with our own neighbors and in our own neighborhood. And that whole effort kind of culminated, as Jordan alluded to a moment ago, last Sunday with our annual Missions Sunday where we specially highlight the individuals and organizations that we are in partnership with to spread the gospel here locally in our community as well as in uh, places all around the world. And now we get to resume this series in the Old Testament book of Exodus, which is really a book of the Bible. It's just the second book of the Bible. And I want to remind us of a couple things we said at the outset of this series, because that was back in like September, and you just might have forgotten every word I mentioned on Sunday morning in September, which is totally okay, because I don't even remember what I said in September. Um, we started Exodus realizing that it is the second book of the Bible, and because it's so early, it tells a story of God and what he's doing with his people and with the people of the world. And that story is important not only because it's just like a cool story of what God did to some people who lived like thousands of years ago, which if that's all it was, maybe cool, but you know, so what? It's actually far more than that. That story frames the Bible's entire story. If you understand the, the point Exodus is getting across, then you will understand the Bible. You will understand God, and you're in a great place to understand the gospel and have your life changed. That's how important a book Exodus really is. The story of Exodus, of course, just to kind of remind us where we've been to get us ready to launch back into it, is a story of God saving his people from slavery in ancient Egypt and taking them to freedom in the promised land. And that ends up becoming the, the whole model of what God is doing to the human race in saving us from slavery to our sin and leading us to our eternal home in heaven. Exodus is really a story about the gospel. It's about the whole Bible. I mean, the narrative components to the story so far that we've seen are fairly familiar. Um, book opens with the ancient Israelites literally enslaved in Egypt and being mistreated and they're crying out to God for rescue. God hears them and he sends Moses, of course, the most prominent figure in this book of the Bible, one of the most prominent figures in the entire Old Testament, to lead the people out of captivity. Uh, through Moses, he uh, executes the famous ten plagues on the Egyptian pharaoh and let my people go and that whole argument. And that finally culminates with um, God saving his people through the crossing of the Red Sea and the parting of the water, some of the most famous stories in the Bible. And they go through on dry ground. God miraculously saves his people. 
Then he leads them on a wilderness journey, actually not toward the promised land, but as we pointed out last fall, in almost completely the opposite direction. The first place he wants to take them is to Mount Sinai. That's a special place where God says, before I take you to the promised land, you guys have to understand me. Like, we need to... If, if this isn't, like, too flippant, this was like the cosmic DTR, right? Define the relationship. You've ever heard that term? We need to have the DTR talk. God took them to Sinai for a big cosmic DTR. He says, we need to define our relationship. Um, I've done some pretty cool stuff for you, but I'm not just like a cosmic vending machine just spitting blessings out into your life while you continue to live for yourselves. Like the whole point of this, my people, is that you would be my people and I would be your God and that you would love me and serve me and, and live in a way together that reflects me so everybody else in the world can look at how you live and understand who I am so that they too might be saved. And so he brings them to Mount Sinai to have this kind of face-to-face encounter with him. And we talked quite a bit about that back in December, like how scary it is to have a face-to-face encounter with God. What do you do when the God who is unapproachable approaches? And it turned out that encounter didn't go particularly well, did it? You may recall that God told his people to come forward uh, right up to the mountain where he was to hear his voice as he gave Moses the original Ten Commandments. And the people wanted nothing to do with that. Now, that's, that's kind of where we left it hanging right before Christmas. Uh, Moses is yelling to the people, hey, don't, don't run away. God wants you to come be close. And they're like, nope, <laughs> you go talk to God and come back and tell us what he said. We're happy if you want to go up there, but that's too scary for us. We're happy to warm our hands to your fire, Moses, but that's good enough for us. Just give us some of God's blessings. We don't really want God himself. And you start to see how universally applicable <laughs> the principles in a book like Exodus are, don't you? How many of us yearn for blessings from God? Yes, God, please come into my life and bless me, guide me, help me with this problem, help me to a successful, happy life. But God is God, and he has this funny idea that he's like in charge, you know? <laughs> he starts making demands on our life. He's holy, and all of a sudden it's like, well, wait a minute, I'm not sure I, I want you to take over my life. I just kind of want you to bless it. That's what's been happening sort of narratively. And, and, but, but the question is, okay, that, that's the pieces of the story, but what? What story is really being told here? What's the point? And thematically, there's been a question that's, that's been driving this whole thing from start, and it's going to continue all the way to finish. And the question is simply this. Over and over again, we've encountered it. How will the Israelites respond to God's saving grace? Over and over again. That's the question that the story of Exodus puts to us as readers. God's saving grace always starts. Salvation in the Bible is always by grace through faith. It's never earned. That's as true of the Old Testament as it is of the New Testament. It's a consistent message of the Bible. God walks toward his people, though they've done nothing to deserve it, and he saves them. And then the question is, how will they respond? Will they trust him? Will they follow him? Or will they not? And of course, over and over again, we've seen the answer to that question, right? How will Israel respond to God's saving grace? The answer over and over again has been poorly. Really poorly. An initial like, yes, God, whatever you say, we'll do it. And then the first sign of trouble or pain, and they're like, ah, forget God. 
You see, by the time God brought them to Mount Sinai, it was to be a relationship-defining moment where that experience of his presence would so rock them to their core that it would forever cement their hearts to him so that in the future, when they're tempted to bail on God because things weren't going right, they would remember the fear of the Lord and they would continue to serve him. That's what it was supposed to do. But even in that scene, they failed to follow through on what God told them to do. It didn't work, and they shrank, from back, uh, shrank back from God in fear, sending Moses up close instead. That's where we left uh, our, our people. That's where we left the story. And now we pick up in Exodus chapter 21, and we're going to resume this story. What, what does God do from here? <laughs> well, we kind of came to a climactic moment, and it was sort of a colossal dud, right? It, it just kind of fizzled. Where do, where do we go from here? The interesting thing in the book of Exodus is they don't go anywhere from here. <laughs> The entire rest of the book of Exodus takes place at the foot of Mount Sinai. They don't physically move anywhere else, but there's quite a bit happening in God's relationship with his people. That's what we're going to see this morning. So that brings us up to today's text. Uh, We're looking at Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 22. (laughs) There should probably be a chapter break there, but nobody asked my opinion on that. So we'll begin in verse 22 and going all the way to chapter 23, verse 19. What we have here is three full chapters worth of laws that God gave Moses to tell the people to govern their life as a nation. They say, Moses, you go close to God. We don't want to be near him. And so Moses makes yet another trip up the top of Mount Sinai, and God starts, starts speaking to him. And he says, you go tell the people, here's how I want them to live. Now, we're going to blow through these chapters. In fact, we're going to look at them sort of thematically, obviously, because we're never going to cover every word of three chapters in just one sermon. But it's actually helpful to take all three chapters in one kind of sweep, because you notice a couple of key themes when you do that. All of these laws are really just God elaborating on and applying the Ten Commandments. What does it mean to have no other gods before me? (laughs) What does it mean to not steal and not envy and not murder? Like, so he says, okay, so as you guys develop a society, that society is going to reflect me. So here's how the Ten Commandments look when they're applied. The laws in these three chapters are fairly simple and straightforward. They got far more complex later on in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But this initial set of laws is fairly simple and straightforward. A simply fleshed out look at the Ten Commandments. And God's purpose in that is very clear. He wants his people to reflect his character so that the world will know what he's like. And if you want to know one thing that these three chapters and this morning's whole sermon is about, it's that. Let me say that again. God wants his people to reflect his character so that the rest of the world will know what he is like and how they can find life in coming to worship him as well. That's a lesson that was true for the Israelites. It's true for us still today. So when you look at this whole group of laws, what do you see? And we basically see three things. We're going to break this down into three very simple categories. I'll just give them to us right at the beginning, and then we'll take a look at each one briefly in turn. First of all, the first kind of categories of laws are saying worship only God and only the way he said to worship him. So God claims exclusive right on their worship, and he also claims the authority to define how they're going to approach him. Secondly, many of the laws relate to seeing and protecting the needs of the people in the Israelite society who are the most vulnerable, the most easy to overlook or forget about or even take advantage of. 
several classes of people who are easily uh, taken advantage of are called out and God says you make sure that their rights are protected. The third and final class of laws are ones designed to advocate for justice in society. Um, to basically take responsibility for the consequences of their own actions and make sure that people are being treated fairly. God says you do those three things, you guys are living the Ten Commandments and you will be a different society that reflects me. So briefly, let's look at each one of these in turn. We're going to see an example or two from each kind of category. Um, talk a little bit about why. What is it about God that's reflected here? And then, most importantly, maybe what are some of the applications for us to think about today? So let's look at this first group. Laws that reflect um, the command to worship only God and only as he instructs. There's a couple of examples that are up on the screen. If you've got your Bibles, I would encourage you to open them to Exodus chapter 20. We'll look at a couple samples from this group of laws. Uh, starting with, for example, Exodus chapter 20, verses 22 and 23. This is right how he, he begins this discussion with Moses. Now that he's back up to the mountain. The Lord said to Moses, Exodus 20, verse 22, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. Remember, they had heard God's voice when he originally spoke the Ten Commandments to uh, Moses. And that becomes important. He says, therefore, uh, that's implied, uh, verse 23, You shall not make gods of silver to be with me or alongside me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. No idols. <laughs> no idols. That was a very common uh, religious practice amongst all the cultures of that day. They would make physical statues, often out of precious metals, and they would bow down and worship them. God says, no, not, not for you guys. That will not happen in your midst. Again, chapter 22, if you jump over to there, verse 20, another law, for example, just dropped right in the middle of this group of laws. Whoever sacrifices, this is Exodus 22, verse 20, whoever sacrifices to any God other than me alone shall be devoted to destruction. It's pretty serious stuff. <laughs> Idolatry, idol worship was a capital offense in ancient Israel. And just one more example from the end of this group of laws, chapter 23, verse 13. Pay special attention, God says, to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it even be heard on your lips. Your life as a community is to be so characterized by wholehearted devotion to me that you don't even want to name these false gods because they don't exist anyway. And the point is pretty clear, right? The very first commandment of the Ten Commandments is what? You shall have no other gods before me. And God is just elaborating on that. Total devotion to me and me alone. Why? Simply because Yahweh, his name, alone is real, he is living, and he is active. All those other gods were fake imposters. They were figments of a culture's imagination. They were wood, they were stone, they were metal, silver, and gold. But they'd heard God's voice. They'd know that he's alive. He's intelligent. He's involved. He's active. And so the heart's devotion should reflect this. That's what he's saying amongst his people. Pursuing God is the greatest, most wonderful being there is, the sovereign ruler of the earth and the deep lover of our souls. To divide loyalties, to worship God some and then have a little space over there for that other idol, you know, just in case there's something to that, you know, or in, in any way to give God less than our full and total devotion is to say he's not worthy of full and total 
devotion. It's to say that some other things have value that God does not. God says that's right at the heart of your life as a nation. He also says to worship him only as he instructed. So he doesn't just say worship me primarily. Worship me as your prime or your number one or only object of worship. He says, I'm going to tell you how to do it. You don't get to decide how you worship me. I decide how you approach me. And you see this in several of these laws. Since we're in uh, chapter 23, we can look at a couple of them here. Starting in verse 12. Six days, he says, you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien, everybody who's living within you may be refreshed. This is just an application and reiteration of the fourth commandment. There's a Sabbath day. Keep it holy once every uh, seven days. And he goes on, verse 14, to describe the three feasts. That's all that there originally was. That the Israelites were to keep throughout the year as a memory of what God did. Verse 14, three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. Keep the feast of unleavened bread. Uh, We saw that clear back in chapter 12 and 13. That had to do with Passover and the original um, uh, protection that God gave his people from the 10th plague. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in that month you came out of Egypt. None of you shall appear before me empty-handed. In other words, bring your offerings and sacrifices during these feast times. Two other feasts, you shall also keep the feast of the harvest, the first fruits of your labor, of which you sow in the field. We saw all these earlier in Exodus. And lastly, you shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor, three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord your God. And so God gives them these specific ways that they were to approach him and not to forget because all of these things were designed to reflect his character and remind them of who he really is, of his true worth. So, in this first category of laws, you see God saying, worship only me and only as I have instructed you. I'm not only the right object of your total devotion. I'm the one who dictates how you are to worship me. This was designed to reflect the truth of God's exclusive supremacy, both inwardly, their devotion, and outwardly, their visible worship practices. And this is a theme that carries throughout the entire Bible. It's not an Old Testament concept. Uh, Jesus himself in the New Testament was clear that no one comes to the Father... God, except through him. I am, Jesus said, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There's no other path to salvation. There's no other right object of your religious devotion. The Bible's clear from start to finish. If you want to be saved, you must come, Jesus says to me. Not me and somebody else. Not me and your sincerely held beliefs about another way to find salvation. You must come to me and me alone. And he also dictates the terms of how we can come to saving faith. In a world where often believing in God or believing in Jesus is is a fairly common term you run into and it's sort of amorphous, it's kind of vaguely defined in the minds of a lot of people. Do you believe in God? Sure. Do you believe in Jesus? Yeah. What does that mean? Some people are really clear on that. Others, not so much. Yet the Bible clearly defines those terms. What does it mean to respond to the gospel? James chapter 2, verse 19, for example, in the New Testament, makes it very clear that simply believing in God won't do us any better than it does to Satan and his demons. 
Bible says you believe in God, good for you. So do demons. Not so subtle implication. <laughs> it's not going to do them a lick of good, is it? What does believing in God mean? Just acknowledging he exists? How do I find true life in Christ the only way? Fortunately, the Bible doesn't leave us in the dark about that at all. It is crystal clear, and it repeats it over and over again in a hundred different ways. To respond to salvation in Christ is to respond in what the Bible calls repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. And it turns out those two words are really just two sides of the same coin. To repent, that simply means it's a conscious, life-altering decision to stop living for us in our old way, and to start living for Christ. And that type of decision actually shows in a person's actions. And to rely completely on his finished work for the forgiveness of all our sins, past, present, and future. That's what it means to believe. To turn away from this life and turn toward relying completely on Christ and living for him. Over and over again, Jesus said when he started his ministry in Mark 1.15, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, so repent and believe in the gospel. That's what you do. That's what you do. And having made that decision, he then wants us to go public with such a decision, which is what baptism is all about. That's why getting baptized is such an important thing. It's not only a private and personal thing. It's actually a very public act with a church family and anybody else to see it, to say, I have been crucified with Christ. My old me is gone. I've repented from that old me and I'm a totally new person. I've now been raised to new life because of Jesus. That's who I am. It behooves us all at this point, especially those of us who think of ourselves as followers of Jesus Christ to pause and ask, how vague or general is my faith? Or is it biblically specific and clear? Have you followed Christ the way Christ tells us to follow him? Have you repented of your sin the way the Bible defines that? Have we followed through and let others know about that through baptism and becoming part of the church community? Even these Old Testament laws invite each one of us to be clear on that point. And, and let me just say, that is so much a part of the ministry of our church. The Bible is so clear on that. We want every person to be as clear as possible, not just because of what we think, but we want to lead you into Scripture and talk about what the Bible says. We do that as part of our membership process. We do it as part of our baptism process. We do it regularly in conversation. And so I want to encourage you, if you're even a little bit unclear as to what repentance and faith mean and how they relate to your own experience, talk with other members of this church. Talk with myself and our other elders and staff leaders. We would love to have conversations with you about what the Bible really teaches so that you can be as clear as God intends us to be. God didn't want the ancient Israelites to have a general commitment to him that could have commitment to other idols crop in. He wanted them to be totally devoted to him as he had laid out. That's his first set of laws. But there's another set. The second set of laws had to do, we mentioned, with noticing and protecting the vulnerable. Interesting. Quite a few of these laws have to do with noticing and protecting the vulnerable in their midst. Several classes or categories of ancient Israelites in their society were called out specifically, just for the sake of time, I'll give us three here very briefly. Um, first of all, foreigners. People who are not actually ethnically Israelites, but they're living with you for a while. Several laws apply to foreigners. For example, chapter 22, verse 21 says, 
you, plural, all of you Israelites, shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. For you yourselves were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Like, this is really important to God. Make sure that when the foreigners living with you, you don't oppress them. Now, why would he call out foreigners? Well, because they're different, right? They look different. They eat different. They may talk different. And therefore, it's easier for them to be marginalized. They also may not fully understand all the nuances of your language or your history or your laws. And so it's easier to pull one over on them because they don't know the full system of your society yet. So you be on the lookout for those people. And you make really sure that none of them are being overlooked or taken advantage of. Another group would be widows and fatherless children. Uh, Sticking in chapter 22 here, just reading on, verses 22 to 24. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword. Yikes. God is serious about this, right? Your wives shall become widows and your children will become fatherless. If you fail to recognize the plight of these people, then it's going to be just punishment that you suffer that plight yourself. God says that's the obligation you have to care for those who are vulnerable. That made particular sense in that period of history because it was a very uh, patriarchal society. So women and children who had no patriarch, they had no husband or father or, or, or a male head of the family to sort of lead the clan, they were both economically and socially quite vulnerable, therefore easy to forget about, to neglect, to take advantage of. Israel was to be the kind of community that was on the lookout for such people. That's interesting. Israel was to be the kind of community that was actively on the lookout for such people seeking to make sure they weren't neglected or overlooked. One more class, um, bond servants. Back at chapter 21, verses 1 and 2. These are the rules that you shall set for them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, some of our Bibles say, bond servant, probably a little bit better translation, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go free for nothing. Now, Israelites, uh, as was the case in many of these ancient economies, which were very simple compared to our modern economies, they could sell, if they were poor, they could sell their labor. In effect, they were kind of under contract. That's not at all a one-to-one comparison, but that's roughly how we might think of it. They could place themselves under contract to a more wealthy Israelite to work on his farm or shepherd his flocks or whatever. And that was, again, a very common thing. But God specified several laws that protected such servants from undue harshness and preserved their ultimate freedom as human beings, such as the law we just read. It it limited their period of indenture or service to six years. It was a way of saying, I don't want the rich to continue to keep the poor poor and basically make lifelong slaves out of them. At the end of six years, man, they go free. They don't have to pay you anything. It was a way of maintaining the freedom of choice and and of self-determination for the poor. At this point, let me just pause our kind of flow of, of looking at these laws and just make a, a brief word about slavery in particular, and particularly how it relates to the Bible. That's a huge, multifaceted, complicated subject. We're not going to solve all those problems in the next two minutes here. But we would be remiss not to say something, and particularly because of our own nation's sick and sordid history with the African slave trade, which colors how we read this issue in particular like a pair of sunglasses. 
um, a word of clarification is in order. So let me offer two words, actually. Uh, this may raise as many questions as it answers, but I think it's important for us to understand, I think, the heart of what God is trying to get across here. First of all, when, when slavery or bond servanthood is being referred to, what is, what is it about? What, what was that like? And as best we can tell from all the scholars and historians that, that we've read, there's a little bit of debate here and there, but it's fairly well understood that it was more akin to um, indentured servitude rather than the kind of ownership slavery that was characteristic of the American slave trade. Uh, there's no question it, ref- it, it restricted the freedom of the bond servant. They, they were bond servants. They were bound to that master to serve him for a certain period of time. But nowhere near the way American slavery reflect, uh, restricted the freedom of its slaves because American slavery didn't restrict its freedom and annihilated their freedom to the point where they were not only treated as not people, but they were actually overtly said to be less than people. They were property. These kinds of bond servants were, again, under contract loosely, um, and they certainly owed allegiance to their masters, but they were still independent people with basic rights. They were not subhuman property. And and this is shown in their right of of choice and self-determination. You're in chapter 21. Drop down to verse 16. This is a great example of it. Whoever steals a man, that word, by the way, is literally kidnaps, by the way. Whoever kidnaps a man and sells him, along with anyone found in possession of such a man, shall be put to death. Slavery, in the horrific way it was practiced in this nation's history, was a capital offense in ancient Israel which was particularly poignant for the Israelites because how did they get into Egypt in the first place? Their great patriarchs, the men from whom the Israelite tribes got their names, kidnapped their brother and sold him into slavery. Something they meant for evil and God used for good, but it was still a heinous capital offense. God says that is not who you are. People all around you may kidnap people and and take enemies that they defeat in battle and force them into slavery. And and you may kidnap one another and kidnap one another and sell them into slavery. He says, not amongst you. Not amongst you. So the first word of clarification is sometimes we see this word slave in the Bible. Other times, modern English translations have used a word like bondservant for clarification. It's a helpful clarification. Second word of clarification. It is still true that this system was certainly ripe for abuse among especially sinners because there was a power differential there. A a person who sold him or herself into bond servanthood gave up rights and could not then speak and their master owned their labor for a defined period of time and had a very strong hand in what their life was going to look like. So strong that we as modern Americans who are so independent are like, like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that they could tell them who to marry and not marry and some of the stuff that just strikes us as crazy. And even back then, It was right for abuse amongst sinners. And that's why the thrust of God's laws here sought protection for these servants. If you go through and you read in these chapters about all the laws related to bond servants, you'll see that they're basically trying to protect them from overly harsh treatment and protect their basic future and their rights of choice. If they suffered undue abuse, they would be set free and entitled to restitution, those kinds of things. So it's important for us to understand, I think, especially because as a church community, 
uh, although we're in maybe the northwest, not the deep south, which is perhaps stereotypically uh, more grappling with this issue, none of us is immune to the sick after effects of the American slave trade. Thank God that was abolished ages ago. But a sin that deep still echoes in racism and some of its other echoes that ripple throughout society today. There are implications and applications of these laws for us as modern Christians. So whether it's foreigners, orphans and widows, bond servants, and all of this, here's the bottom line. God is telling his people to identify those most likely to be in need, most likely to be ignored, most likely to be taken advantage of, and work to include the forgotten and protect those easily taken advantage of. Why? Why is that so important to God that he will kill any of his people that refuse to do it? It's a capital offense. Why? Because that's who God is. Plain and simple. That, that's who God is. God goes after doomed and helpless people. That's us and makes a way for them to find life. He doesn't owe them anything. It's a great cost to him, but he is on the lookout for desperate people who don't deserve his salvation, but he seeks the lost. Exodus is the story of him hearing his people's cry and and, and, and rescuing them because they were helpless and bringing them to a good life in the promised land. And as we said, that's the model of all of Scripture, the story of God seeing us trapped in our sin and bound for eternal hell and coming after us, not because we deserved it, to make a way for us to be with him in heaven for all eternity at great cost to himself. God sees the needy and responds to their good. If he didn't, there would be no gospel. There would be no Christians. There would be no hope for any of us. We owe our eternity as Christians to this aspect of God's character. And so God's church is to reflect that character. That leads me to ask, how well? As a church, do we reflect God's character in this way? Seeing in our midst those most easy to overlook, most likely to be neglected, or even, Lord forbid, taken advantage of. To see people who come from different backgrounds. I hope you were here last week during our, it's a real small, but I think really important example of this, for our Missions Sunday. One of the, the coolest things, it was only a couple of minutes in the service, but if you were here, you remember, we had several of our members on the platform over here, and they were reading and reciting scripture, some in English, and then some in their native tongues. Do you remember that? I just sat there, like, with my heart just about ready to explode, um, I enjoyed Mark's message, but it would have been okay with me if Mark said less and they talked more. I love you, Mark. Are you here? He's probably on a business trip. Good. I can say that. Strike that off the tape. No, I'm kidding. Mark did a phenomenal job. I, I just loved hearing them. Caroline came up here and spoke in her native French. Uh, Liz spoke in her native Spanish. Vladi spoke in his native Ukrainian. And Kyoko spoke in her native Japanese. And Susan spoke in, I guess it's not native, but American Sign Language. <laughs> in which she is fluent, and just to to hear English with those accents, and then to hear native tongues spoken by native people declaring the praises of God. It was only a few minutes, but it's just like this, this little taste, this little picture of God's dream, God's vision that he will achieve 
of a throne in heaven surrounded by people from, as the Bible puts it, all tribes, tongues, and nations, or as we might say, people from all ethnic backgrounds, all language groups, all walks of life surrounding the throne because of Jesus and praising God. And they won't all be doing it in modern English. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. It was a beautiful reflection of God's heart. And I hope in some small way it reminds us, those of us who are part of this church, that God's vision is bigger than just our own experience. And in some small way, maybe it signals to those who aren't a part of the majority of who we are that there is a place here for them because this is God's house. Brothers and sisters, members of Harvest, let's face it. If we look in the mirror, we're pretty white. We really are. That's okay. That's nothing to be ashamed of. It is something to be aware of. You know, if, you, if you're from a minority ethnic group, sometimes, not always, sometimes you walk into a place where you don't really know anybody and they're all from a different ethnic group and you can immediately feel out of place. Have you ever had that experience? It's not always ethnicity either. Sometimes it's just like economic status. Um, ours, Hillsborough, is a professional community. We know that. Uh, many of us are blessed to hold jobs in professional sectors from major and even global employers in our community, and that's wonderful. That's awesome. But not everybody is living at that same financial level. And if you walk in and you kind of sense, like I saw what was out there in a the parking lot, and I see how people are dressed, and I'm not sure these are my people, sometimes, not always, but sometimes, that stuff can be going through people's minds, even subconsciously. Do I fit? The question is always there. And it's not even ethnicity and economics. It can be a hundred other things. People from different or no religious backgrounds. It can be so intimidating to walk into a church like Harvest for the first time if you really don't know much about the Bible and you don't have much experience in church. And you hear people like singing these songs and like they know all these songs and this weird preacher guy's up there using like Bible words I've never heard of before. Like I don't even know what that means and everybody's nodding their heads. Like they all understand. I don't even know what's going on here. Do I fit? Is there a place for me? Not always, but often. That question is there. The point I'm driving at is do we have a culture of seeing people as people? And perhaps especially those who are more likely to wonder if there's a place for them here. Picking up on such potential needs, I mean, you never know until you ask, so we, we never want to presume what somebody else is feeling just based on how they look, but, but always recognize the potential and walk toward people and look for ways to signal to them their worth in our eyes. I know the hearts of the people in this church and how caring and compassionate of people we are I know it's there, and sometimes it comes out in some beautiful ways. I think we could do better at letting it out more by more proactively seeing those who are new. Maybe they're in a position of social vulnerability, simply meaning they just don't know anybody. You ever walk into a room of people, even if they're the same ethnic background and the same economic status as you, but like, you know, it's your like spouse's Christmas work party or something, and you walk in, you don't know anybody? How do you feel? How long do we have to be at this thing, right? <laughs> I, you just, I don't fit. These people all know each other, and I don't know. Do we have the eyes to see people and to walk toward them? Lastly, not only to worship God alone the way he said, to see and fight for uh, those 
and protect those who are most vulnerable. Lastly, God tells his people to fight for what's right, to advocate for justice. This last category of laws instructed the Israelites to actively pursue fairness and justice in their society. Uh, Many examples, here's just, again, a couple for the sake of time. Uh, Many of the, the laws give them specific instructions on how to pay restitution for damages that they caused. In other words, like, own your stuff, right? <laughs> own your stuff. Like, if, if you knocked over the bag of dog food, you clean it up, right? I mean, that's what a lot of these laws really amount to. Chapter 21, verses 33 and 34. If a man digs a pit, or um, uh, opens a pit, sorry, or digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, meaning a neighbor's ox or donkey falls down, breaks its neck, and dies, that's the idea, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and then the dead beast shall be his. So there's this, I mean, it's just basic. Like, through your negligence, your neighbor suffered property damage. So what do you do? You pay for it. Now, it's not really revolutionary, right? Except when sinners are involved. People that have a bent to look out for themselves first and foremost whoa, okay, I didn't cover the pit, but what was his ox doing there? Maybe he's 28% at fault, so I only want to pay 72% of what the ox is worth, right? I mean, we're always looking for, like, he's like, own your stuff. <laughs> own your stuff. You dug the pit, you didn't cover it, somebody else paid for it. Pay for them. Likewise, there are laws to limit vigilante justice. Uh, you're still in chapter 21, probably the best known and, dare I say, most often misquoted verses from the Old Testament. Some of them are right here. Chapter 21, verses 23 through 25. If there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Anybody ever heard an eye for an eye? And tooth for tooth? Like This is where it comes from, right? It's interesting to hear the context in which that comes up because it almost seems like it's a vengeful thing as if this is some sort of ancient and barbaric justice system when actually in context I think it's precisely the opposite. What God is doing here is he's trying to prevent vigilante justice. He recognizes how quickly in a sinful context a, a, a victim can become a victimizer, right? You hurt me, and I want you to not only pay for the damages, I want you to hurt for it because <laughs> you did it in the first place. I want to hurt you even more. And now that person's mad at me because I've hurt them more, and it just becomes this unstoppable cycle of violence and feuding that will fracture a society. God says, no, <laughs> no, no, no. You pay for the damages caused and no more. It was trying to match the punishment to the crime. Make sure that your society, he says, is just. There's other laws in here about not testifying falsely, um, not partnering in a scheme that you know is immoral to defraud people, all that kind of stuff. So many of these laws set just penalties for various situations and call the Israelites to own the consequences of their own behavior. Why? Because God is perfectly just. Even as he's extending mercy by not making sinners pay for their sin, which raises a really interesting question we're going to come back to in chapter 34. But the point is, God's mercy could easily be used as a way of saying, so you don't care about justice. God says, no, I very much care about justice. Every sin will be paid for. And so within my community, there needs to reflect my character.
which is such a contrast to our sinful tendency to like, look out for number one, right? That seems to be human nature, if we can put it that way. To get away with as much as we can or only meet our obligations when someone is watching. I had one of those great moments a number of years ago. My kids were younger, and there was a neighbor that had a sprinkler out on their lawn. It was one of these portable things. It was on a plastic stand with a big foot that went out that gave it balance. And it had been there for a long time. It was very weathered, and part of that foot was hanging a little out over the sidewalk as their sprinkler was facing into their lawn. One of my kids rode by and and just ran over the, the little foot on their bike and completely snapped it in half. And to their credit, came back and told us. And so now I'm thinking, like, okay, parent moment. What do you do, right? (laughs) I'm like, it's not worth hardly anything. um, But, you know, I'm not going to ignore it. So we go down there. And the neighbor wasn't outside when it happened. They didn't see who did it. So we saw them outside. And uh, we went down there and said, hey, that was us. (laughs) Um, We happened to hit that by mistake and broke it. And they're like, oh, yeah, no big deal or whatever. You know, we're just talking to them or whatever. But it's like... we're happy to buy you a new sprinkler. Like, that was on us. Now, i got to admit, there was a little part of me that was like, that thing is pretty old. <laughs> I mean, it was totally, it had been like dark green. It was all light green. That was totally brittle, baking in the sun for years. And you know, it was hanging out a little bit on the sidewalk. <laughs> what if we go 50-50 on this thing? You know, I mean, I wasn't seriously tempted, but it's like the thought actually flashed through my mind. There's this part of me that says, do I really want to just own it? Of course, I had the extra parental impetus to say, kids, you need to learn a good lesson. I need to learn a good lesson, right? (laughs) No, we're going to offer to pay for this whole thing. We broke it. Because all those things deep down inside are just rationalizations. So how about us? As God's people, are we known to be a people who own our stuff, take responsibility, do the right thing, whether anyone's watching or not? Pay all of your taxes even when your audit risk is low. Drive the speed limit even when no patrol officers are around. Now we're meddling. (laughs) Show up to work on time even if everyone else is habitually 15 minutes late and that's just the culture of the place. Thousands of possible applications of these kinds of principles, but the principle stands. Own your stuff. Work for what's right insofar as it depends on you because the God we love is a just and righteous God. Brothers and sisters, when we take these things as a whole and kind of step back and look at this whole uh, set of laws, (laughs) worship only God and only the way he instructed, see and care for the vulnerable and work for what's right, you kind of realize, uh, as Jesus put it, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. On these two principles, Jesus says, hangs the entire law and the prophets. That's the whole thing God was getting at in the Old Testament. You can see that reflected even here. It's like, love me with all you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. Because if our church community at Harvest were to reflect those three values in how we live, we would be the light of the world. We would definitely be a light in this community. That's a compelling picture of community that God can use. And that's not just a good thing to think about. That's our marching orders from Christ, our King. I don't know where any of this finds you. I've had to wrestle and squirm with a lot of these things this, this past week, but... The wrestling and the squirming for us as Christians doesn't culminate in us saying, 
I'm going to try to do it better. It culminates in us coming back to Christ, our King, for cleansing, for forgiveness, for filling with His Spirit, and empowering to live the way that He wants us to live. And right now, I want to encourage us to spend some time reflecting on what God may be saying to each one of us who considers ourselves a Christian this morning. Or perhaps even if you're not a Christian, maybe God is calling you to repent for the first time and consider that. And we've got a great opportunity to do that because we're coming to the communion table here in just a moment. Communion is one of these regular practices that Jesus instituted in his church. He said, you do this as often as you eat and drink in memory of me. It's a very simple action with a very profound message. In communion, we eat a piece of bread and we drink from the cup. But Jesus says that bread represents my body that was broken for you and that cup represents my blood that was shed for you on the cross. And so when we're doing this together as a church family, we're not just eating bread and drinking from a cup. We are actually, the Bible says, proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. And so by receiving communion, that very act, you're saying, without using any words, but with your actions, you're saying, I'm a Christian. I've repented, I've believed in Jesus, and I'm trusting him for my eternal security, and I'm trusting him to cleanse me from my sins right now. And so if you've not made that personal commitment to Christ, I encourage you to just let the communion elements pass by when they come by, which they will in just a few moments. If you have made that commitment to Christ and responding to the gospel, then I want to urge us to receive communion as an act of worship. Right now, I'd like to ask the music ministry team to come back up here. They're going to get ready to lead us. And if the ushers could come forward to distribute the communion elements. I'm going to pray for us. And then in just a moment, the bread is going to be passed around. Just go ahead and hang on to those until everybody has received it. There's going to be some music just playing in the background. And that's just time for you to reflect. And so I want to encourage you to just pray where you're at and reflect. Is there, is there an area of, of sin that God has brought to your attention? Is there an area of hope you need to hold on to? Just silently where you're at, pray, do business with Jesus, and then we'll come back together again and receive the elements in just a moment.